Our second Bible reading this morning is Psalm 90, the only psalm written by Moses. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. For we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep that page open during the sermon so we can all look closely at what God is saying to us in his word. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's spirit to teach us. A prayer from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A swim in the pond in the rain is the title of a best-selling book by George Saunders about Russian short stories. It was recommended to me by a couple of members of our congregation, and I'm grateful to them, not only because I enjoyed the book, but because also, at one point in the book, George Saunders says something that has a very good fit with today's psalm, Psalm 90. Here comes a, a quote from the book. It's quite long, but I think very easy to listen to. I was once on a plane that lost an engine, seagulls, 
and for about 15 minutes, everyone on board believed we were about to crash. After a sound like a minivan ramming the side of the plane, black smoke began pouring out of those overhead air nozzles. A girls' softball team started screaming. I could see the grid of lit streets, Chicago, coming up way too fast. And the pilot, sounding panicked, came on the PA just long enough to shout, stay in your seats with your seatbelts on. Not comforting. And I saw that death, Saunders gives death an uppercase D, and I saw that death had been in the world all along, but that until this moment I had failed to notice it. And it was coming for me, now, soon. The comfortable, happy, confident person I'd always been before that moment, how stupid and cluelessly trusting in the kindness of the universe he seemed now. The comfortable, happy, confident person I'd always been before that moment, how stupid and cluelessly trusting in the kindness of the universe he seemed now. Well, you don't need me to tell you that the plane Saunders was on was able to land safely because otherwise he would never have been able to write about that experience. What Saunders says about death and its presence in the world has a lot in common with what Moses says in Psalm 90. Saunders says, death had been in the world all along, but until this moment I had failed to notice it. Then once he'd really noticed death, he describes himself as stupid and clueless to have trusted in the kindness of the universe beforehand. Psalm 90 wants us to have that same kind of realization without needing to be on a plane in danger of crashing. Psalm 90 wants us to meditate on death, to think about what it means to live in a universe with death in it. And my prayer is that it will be good for us this morning to remember death, because it will help us, in the words of verse 12, to gain a heart of wisdom. The psalm is very carefully structured, and once you see the structure, you won't be able to unsee it. It has what's known as a ring structure. Think of a pebble dropped into water with a series of ripples circling that central point. In Psalm 90, the pebble is verse 10, and there are three ripples surrounding the pebble. It's a little hard to see it with the way it's set out in two columns, but if you imagine Psalm 10, there at the, verse 10 I mean, there at the middle, and then the text beforehand is the far side of three ripples, and the text in the second column is the near side of those same ripples. I hope that makes sense. We'll identify those rings as we go along. We'll come back to the structure. But the important thing to note at this stage is the pebble verse, verse 10. Verse 10 is the truth bomb that the rest of the psalm engages with. It says, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80 
if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. That gloomy statement instantly stirs up two questions. I expect you're already asking them, first, is that really true? Is it right to take such a downbeat view of things? And the second question is, if verse 10 is true, what difference does saving faith make to that situation? The rings that come before verse 10, the far side of those three rings, the first column of text, they answer the first question, is verse 10 accurate? The rings that come after verse 10, the second column, the near side of the rings, deal with the second question. What difference does saving faith make? So the rest of the sermon will be in two parts, looking first at verses 1 through 10, despondent realism, and then verses 10 through 17, dependent optimism. Verse 10 is included in each part because of its role as the central pebble. Let's start then with verses 1 through 10. We've given these verses the title despondent realism, despondent downcast, discouraged, lacking hope. There doesn't seem to be hope in these verses. The hope comes later. These verses are setting out the reality of the situation we find ourselves in, the human condition, verses 1 through 10. It's fair to say that verse 1 doesn't seem despondent at first sight. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. But the more you look at verse 1, the more neutral it gets. Lord in that verse isn't the Hebrew name for God. Yahweh in English Bibles, Lord is the traditional way to translate Yahweh. But whenever that happens, Lord has uppercase letters all through the word. As you can see, for example, in verse 13. The Lord in verse 1 isn't God's name, it's his title. And a title is less relational than a name. What's more, the hour in verse 1, our dwelling place, almost certainly refers to all humanity, not just God's own people. Because a couple of verses later, verse 3 is about all humanity. And when Moses says our in verses 9 and 10, he's talking about the whole human race. All our days pass away under your wrath. The length of our days is 70 years. When you read verse 1 as a universal statement about the human condition, it's less comforting and hopeful. There's a similar line in the book of Acts. In him we live and move and have our being. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. That's a line quoted by the Apostle Paul from non-Christian Greek poetry. Paul quotes it because it's an accurate statement about the human condition. In God, we live and move and have our being, but it's a neutral statement. It doesn't in itself offer hope. Even if you disagree with that way of reading verse 1, I think we can all agree that verses 3 through 9 are despondent verses. They're downhearted and discouraged verses lacking hope. 
as you can see from the way the psalm is set out in the service program, verses 3 through 9 can be split into two segments, and we'll begin with the first of those, verses 3 through 6. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. In those verses, Moses puts forward an argument that develops step by step. He starts by reminding us that people die. God turns us back to dust. Dust that crumbles in the tomb. Then verse 4 points out that from God's eternal perspective, a thousand years are like a day. God is outside time and space. He can use the universe's fast forward and rewind buttons. Think of one of those video montages of 20th century history, beginning with grainy black and white images of the Wright brothers getting their airplane off the ground, moving on to soldiers in the trenches of the First World War, dancers in the 1920s jazz age, the Great Depression, the New Deal, the horrors of World War II, post-war prosperity, the swinging 60s, the moon landing, Woodstock, Vietnam, Watergate, the Reagan years, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the dawn of the internet. Thanks to those video montages, we can see a hundred years pass by in a minute. It's always been like that with God, and he sees every detail in the sweep of his vision, not just a few highlights. A thousand years in your sight, Moses says to God in verse 4, are like a day that has just gone by. In God's sight, one generation of human beings lives and dies, then another lives and dies, then another lives and dies, all between breakfast and supper time. Verses 5 and 6 then turn that truth into picture form. Human life with its rising and falling generations is like new grass that's springy in the morning and dry and withered by the end of the day. When you put those four verses together, the argument they make is that if you just speed up human history, and God can, Human life doesn't have the weightiness and substance that we assume it has while we're living it. Each generation lives and dies, it rises and falls like grass, and grass isn't significant or substantial or weighty, it's grass. In the next section, verses 7, 8, and 9, we're told the reason why human beings are turned back to dust. Verse 7 starts with that easy to miss, but very important word, for. It tells us there's an explanation coming. Why does human existence have this grass-like brevity? It's because of God's anger at our sin. Verses 7 and 9 speak of God's anger. And verse 8 says that God sees our iniquities, even our secret sins. That's the explanation for the inescapability of death. Human sin makes God angry. In Genesis 3, just a few pages into the Bible, humanity rebels against God's good rule, and God responds with these words, Dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Those are words Moses has in mind in verse 3. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is the penalty for sin. In the book of Romans, Paul says that death is like receiving a salary, a salary earned not by a month's hard work, but by a lifetime of wrongdoing. Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Well, now that we've seen the background to verse 10, all the verses leading up to that central pebble, verse 10 itself, I think, doesn't seem so Eeyore-ish. Verse 10 isn't a glumster's summary of human existence. It's simply the unvarnished truth. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. That word for is helpful once again at the start of the last line of verse 10. The verse isn't saying that human beings are never happy. It's saying life's fleetingness makes life sorrowful. That's true. My parents take great joy in their grandchildren, Solly and Abel, and their other grandchildren. But my parents are both in their 80s. They probably won't get to see Solly and Abel fully grown. I don't know if my parents think about that, but surely if they do, it makes them sorrowful. It makes me sorrowful to think about that. We can't hold on to our joys in this world. They, they slip through our fingers because we die far too soon. We're lying on a hospital bed in pain with anxious faces looking down at us and our pulse slowly weakening. That future reality casts its shadow over all that comes before. Remember what George Saunders thought as his plane threatened to crash. The comfortable, happy, confident person I'd always been before that moment, how stupid, and cluelessly trusting in the kindness of the universe he seemed now. Saunders could see there was an ignorance in his former happiness. It was stupid and clueless, he says, because it assumed the universe was kind. Death stops us taking that view. When we ask the question, is the universe kind? Death, with his hooded cloak and scythe, says, no, it's not. Now, if you're listening to this sermon online, you may be asking yourself, have I tuned into a Christian worship service? Or am I listening to a talk at one of those conventions for teenagers who like wearing black clothes and scary eye makeup? Where's the joy of the Lord? Where's the encouragement of salvation? Well, let me reassure you, you have tuned into a Christian worship service and joy and encouragement are on the way. But we had to track with the argument of the psalm up until verse 10 so we can fully appreciate the difference God makes to the human condition when you know him and trust him and believe in his promises. So let's now move on to the second half of the psalm. We're turning from despondent realism to dependent optimism. That's our heading for the second half of the sermon. Dependent optimism. 
Think back to that picture of the psalm's structure, a central pebble circled by ripples in the water. In the second half of the psalm, we come across the same ripples, the same themes, but now they're transformed by God's intervention. To begin with, we meet the ripple that's closest to the pebble, which means revisiting the themes in verses 7, 8, and 9, our sin and God's anger. Verses 7 through 9 are the far side of the ring, the other side of the pebble, if you see what I mean. Verses 11 and 12 are the near side of the ring. And that's why we encounter the same themes, God's anger in verse 11 and our sin in verse 12. Verse 12 assumes we don't naturally have a heart of wisdom. But on this near side of the ring, this closest ring to the pebble, I hope you see how the ring structure is working. On this near side of the ring, Moses finds reasons for optimism with those same themes. And these reasons for optimism are entirely dependent on God. Moses says to God, who knows the power of your anger? In this world, we don't experience the fullness of God's anger. God holds it back. That's a sign of his mercy and goodness. It shows he has a rescue plan. If there wasn't a rescue plan available, why would God hold back the fullness of his wrath? As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, our Lord's patience means salvation. God restrains his wrath so that more people can be saved. Verse 12 revisits verse 9. So verse 12 on the near side of the ring revisits verse 9 on the far side of the ring. Whereas verse 9 says, all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 12 presents a very different vision for our days. It says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What a difference. Verse 12 says we can use our time in a way that's right in God's eyes. We can develop a wise heart. But those good things come entirely from God. They come from his teaching. Teach us. Moses prays to God. Verses 13 through 15 bring us to the next ripple as we move further away from the central pebble. Verses 13 through 15 are the near side version of verses 3 through 6. So just as verse 5 talks about the morning, so verse 14 talks about the morning. And the word translated relent at the start of verse 13 could be translated return. It's the same root word as the word found twice in verse 3 on the far side of the ripple. You turn men back to dust, same root word as relent, saying return to dust. Those repeated words show us the ring structure that Moses has carefully used for this psalm. And once again, the same pattern is followed. 
While the far side of the ring has no discernible hope, the near side of the ring is full of hope, thanks to God and his intervention. The outlook on this side of the ring is so much sunnier than the outlook on the far side of the same ring. The far side speaks of death and short-lived generations, but here on the near side we find satisfaction and songs of joy. It's all down to God, and it springs from his compassion. Verse 13, and his unfailing love. Verse 14. From our standpoint in salvation history, we see God's compassion and love displayed most of all in the death of Jesus, God's Son, on the cross. As he died, Jesus took upon himself the world's iniquities, the world's secret sins. He did it so that through faith, we could be spared the destruction and fullness of wrath we deserve. And even though Moses lived before the cross, Moses himself shared in that salvation. As we heard in our first Bible reading from Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, there was a sense in which Moses was living for Christ, even before Christ had come into the world. By trusting in God's salvation plan, Moses was trusting in Jesus in advance. It's God's salvation plan that Moses has in view in the final part of the psalm, the near side of the widest ring, the ripple furthest away from the pebble. Moses says to God in verse 16, May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. That reflects the far side of the same ring, verses 1 and 2, where God's deeds are also the theme, his creating and sustaining work. But here in verses 16 and 17, it's God's work of salvation that Moses has in mind. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, he says in verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. God's saving favor rested upon Abel when he brought proper sacrifices to God. God's saving favor rested on Noah at the time of the ark. And here in Psalm 90, it will be God's saving favor that rests upon his servants his children, and their children, verse 16. And because of God's saving favor, his servants' work, the work of their hands, will be established. Think about that. How can our work be truly established in a world where each successive generation is like a field of grass, springy in the morning, withered at night? The only possible explanation is that Moses trusts that work done through God's power, human work done through God's power, has eternal consequences. That is the kind of work that can be truly established forever. Hebrews 11 tells us Moses was looking ahead to his reward, which shows he believed in the reality of eternal life. That's where God's people will enjoy the fruits 
of our spirit-powered work. In the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it is possible to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The meaning of this rich psalm for our lives today is that if you want a life with substance, a life that counts for something eternally, a life that truly does store up treasures in heaven, you'll have to depend on God. Remember how the second half of the psalm leaves despondent realism behind and exchanges it for dependent optimism. All the good things in the second half of the psalm depend on God's intervention. Through his love, we can be satisfied daily. Through his power, our work can be established eternally. But this dependent way of living calls for wisdom. It's not a way of life that we just automatically know how to activate. We need to gain a heart of wisdom through God's teaching, as Moses says in verse 12. And some of that divine teaching is here in this psalm. If you grasp hold of this psalm's message, your heart will begin to grow wise. You'll share Moses' desire for rightly numbered days. And that's where we're going to spend the final two minutes of the sermon in the first line of verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright. Moses' desire for rightly numbered days. Psalm 90 reminds us forcefully that we only have a certain number of days in this world. 70 years worth, or 80 if we're strong, according to verse 10. Fix that limit in your thinking, and it will stir up a desire to use your remaining days well. We've all had the experience of a deadline coming up later in the day, a, a job-related deadline, perhaps, or maybe a plane to catch. When you know the deadline is ahead of you, you figure out all the things you need to do before the deadline strikes. And it's normal in that situation to find that you work a lot more productively than you do on the days with no deadline when time seems plentiful. The point of verse 12 is that our time in this world isn't plentiful. It's a scarce resource, just as we feel it to be on a day with a deadline. When we grasp that we only have a certain number of days in this world, in this life, it motivates us to turn from the fleeting things of this world, those sinful passions secretly at work within us, highlighted in the first half of the psalm. Instead, through dependence on God, we can invest in eternity, prioritizing the things on the near side of verse 10, those solid joys and lasting treasures. In the movie The Martian, Matt Damon's character realizes that he only has a certain number of potatoes and he can't grow more because he's on Mars and it's hard to grow potatoes on Mars. He has a limited number of potatoes and so he thinks very hard about how best to use those limited potatoes. It's similar with us and our days. 
we only have a certain number. So we should think very carefully about how best to use them. Praying, Bible reading, building meaningful relationships with non-Christians, fulfilling our God-given responsibilities faithfully, giving generously, bearing other believers' burdens, ministries of mercy. We'll be more motivated to use our time well by doing those things and others when we see that in this life we only have a certain number of days. Let's pray for God's help in using them rightly. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, thank you for the realism of Psalm 90. Thank you that it opens our eyes to things we perhaps prefer not to think about, but things we need to think about. We pray that you would help us to fix it in our minds that we only have a limited number of years, a limited number of days in this world. And would that realization stir up within us a desire to use our time well by depending on you. And we pray, Father, that through your grace you would teach us and give us a heart of wisdom so that we can use our days well. We pray, Father, that you would help us to gain the satisfaction you offer through your unfailing love. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we serve you, we would sing the songs of joy that Moses speaks of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.